This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Phil Mattingly in for Jake Tapper. And we start with that breaking news. A suspect has been arrested in the murders of the four university students, University of Idaho students. The FBI and Pennsylvania State Police arrested 28-year-old Brian Koberger early this morning in Monroe County, Pennsylvania, near Scranton. DNA recovered at the scene matches Koberger, according to sources. Authorities say the investigation focused on Koberger after investigators traced a white Hyundai Elantra seen in the area of the murders back to him. Any moment now, Moscow, Idaho police are expected to have a news conference. We'll bring it to you live as soon as it begins. It's been more than six weeks since Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, Zana Kronodal, and Ethan Chapin were found stabbed to death in their off-campus house. Their murders shocked the small college town and the country. This presser begins right now. Thank you for coming today. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murders of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. I want to personally thank these agencies for their assistance in this case. Koberger resides in Pullman, Washington, and is a graduate student at Washington State University. We will provide as much information as we can about the extradition to Idaho and the criminal process. However, due to Idaho state law, we are limited in what information we can release today until Kohlberger has, been, has his initial appearance in Idaho court. I want to express my appreciation to our local community, the people of Idaho and those throughout our nation who provided information to help us investigate these murders has been very impressive. We've received over 19,000 tips and we've conducted over 300 interviews. To recap this case, on the evening of November 12th, Kaylee and Madison arrived home at about 1.56 a.m. after visiting a local bar and street food vendor. Ethan and Zana were at the Sigma Chi house before arriving home around 1.45 a.m. The two surviving roommates had also been in the community, but returned around 1 a.m. On the morning of November 13th, a 911 call was made at 11.58 a.m. reporting an unconscious person at the residence. The call came in, call came from inside the home from one of the surviving roommate's cell phones. Moscow police responded and found two victims on the second floor and two victims on the third floor. On November 17th, autopsies were conducted and the Latok County Coroner confirmed the identity of the four victims. The cause and manner of death was homicide by stabbing. Some had defensive wounds and each had multiple, um, each had been stabbed multiple times. These murders have shaken our community and no arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, we do believe justice will be found through the criminal process. This was a very complex and extensive case. We developed a clear picture over time, 
And we stand assured that the work was not, the work is not done, but be assured the work is not done. This has just started. Since November, we have remained laser focused on pursuing, pursuing every lead in our pursuit of justice for the victims and their families. I recognize the frustration with the lack of information that's been released. However, providing any details in this criminal investigation might have tainted the upcoming criminal prosecution or alerted the suspect of our progress. We will continue to provide as much information as we can as the process moves forward. Today, I want to specifically thank our dedicated Moscow Police Department detectives, patrol officers, the Idaho State detectives, the Idaho State troopers, and their crime lab technicians and scientists, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation for the resources and personnel to conduct this massive investigation. It was the dedication of them and the persistence and the numerous hours that led to an arrest. Fortunately, these highly skilled people worked together as a cohesive team to solve this case. I also want to thank our community and the nation. Over the past six weeks, I've been continually reminded of how much our community cares. Locally, public support has been exceptional with kind words, food for investigators, and letters of support. You will never know how much your words of encouragement help us through these trying times. I appreciate each of you and each of your kindness. Agencies and individuals from across the nation have reached out to us to express their support to this department. I'm reminded how our Moscow community, our families, and the nation has been impacted by this daily. Finally, I do want to thank our media partners for the help. You kept this in the uh, news. You helped us with tips. You kept things going, and we truly appreciate that. And you are the product of those 19,000 tips that we received, which is an impressive number. I would like to uh, invite Bill Thompson, the county prosecutor, up at this time. Good afternoon, folks. My name is Bill Thompson. I'm the Lake Tahoe County Prosecutor. And it's sad to be here, but happy to be here at the same time. As Chief Fry indicated, um, a criminal complaint was filed yesterday here in Lake Tahoe County charging the defendant, Mr. Kohlberger, with four counts of first-degree murder, in addition to felony burglary, which involves entering the residence with the intent to commit the crime of murder. Mr. Kohlberger, and let me preface, there is a pending case now in court, and I and my office and the investigators have to live with the restrictions that our Supreme Court places on pretrial publicity. That said, I promise you we will share with you through the court process or otherwise, whatever we are allowed to. I just appreciate your patience on that. The uh, factual basis for the charges are summarized in what's called a probable cause affidavit that is on file with the court. According to the rules of the Idaho Supreme Court, that is sealed until Mr. Kohlberger is physically back in Latah County and has been served with the Idaho arrest warrant. At that time, we expect that that affidavit will be available to you so you can share the true facts 
with all of your readers and your watchers and your listeners uh, and all the people who are interested and really need to know what's going on. So please have patience with us on that. Uh, we hope to get that to you as soon as we can. As far as Mr. Kohlberger, I can share with you that he is a graduate student at Washington State University and has an apartment residence over at Pullman. He has had an initial appearance in front of a judge in Pennsylvania. He is being held without bond, and the warrant from our magistrate judge here also provides for no bond. We understand that he's scheduled to be back in court in Pennsylvania next Tuesday afternoon, and that a public defender has been appointed for him there. The process at this point is since he was arrested in another state, he has the opportunity to either waive extradition and return voluntarily to the state of Idaho, or if he prefers not to waive extradition, then we will initiate extradition proceedings through our governor's office. If we do that, it can take a while for him to get here. So again, I'm asking for your patience and understand that's just the way the system works. Once he gets here, uh, he'll have an initial appearance with our magistrate. They'll deal with issues such as making sure counsel is, uh, competent counsel is representing him and the case will be scheduled for further hearings. Your primary source of factual information is going to be the court record because that's what the Supreme Court says uh, we need to refer you to. So please pay attention to what's going on in court and have people there to watch and hear what's being said. Uh, as, as an attorney, myself, my office, we are limited on what we are allowed by the courts to say outside of the courtroom. So please just work with us. Finally, as the chief indicated, this is not the end of this investigation. In fact, this is a new beginning. You all now know the name of the person who has been charged with these offenses. Please get that information out there. Please ask the public, anyone who knows about this individual, to come forward, call the tip line, report anything you know about him to help the investigators and eventually our office and the court system understand fully everything there is to know about not only the individual, but what happened and why. Next, I'll introduce Colonel Ked Wells from the Idaho State Police. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. My name is Kedrick Wills. I serve as a director of the Idaho State Police and certainly want to express our appreciation for your attendance here today. These tragic murders took four young, vibrant lives from our community. Nothing we do can bring them back. The only thing that we can do in law enforcement to honor their memories that we know of is to bring this to a successful conclusion. This has been a very difficult time for the families, the university, the community, and the state of Idaho. However, it is also proven that communities come together in tough times. Certainly appreciate the support of the local community and our national audience that has been following us as we've worked, our investigators have worked through this case. I'm thankful also to you, the media partners, who have helped keep this case in the forefront that generates the tips and continues, will, we hope will continue to generate information that will help us to a conclusion of this proceeding. I'd like to express our appreciation on behalf of the Idaho State Police to Chief Fry, his leadership, and the entire Moscow Police Department for the way that they handled this from the very beginning. He directed the right people to the right, right positions that led us to this conclusion today. 
I've had the utmost confidence in this investigation and in Chief Fry as well as in Mr. Bill Thompson and the Latah County Prosecutor's Office who've been a great partner throughout this. Nothing has deterred the commitment of the investigators who've worked on this case, regardless of the organization they represent. It's been very trying and very difficult, as we know, as you know, that it has been on those investigators as they do the tedious work that they're so good at doing. The partnerships is what's led here as well. The partnerships between Moscow Police Department, the, I'd like to express our appreciation with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, specifically the special agent in charge out of the Salt Lake City Division, Dennis Rice, and also what the work that happened in the last 24 hours in, in Pennsylvania with the arrest with the Pennsylvania State Police and Colonel Evanchik with the Pennsylvania State Police. We appreciate what they've done across the nation to help us as well. As Bill shared, this investigation is far from over. In fact, I appreciate what he shared, that this is not an ending, but rather a new beginning. The difference now is, as he shared, that we are dictated what information we can share by the court process and by laws in our state of Idaho. And so we will share, as he shared, um, Mr. Thompson uh, is absolutely committed to share everything he can share through the court process. We've got to make sure that we don't get in front of that process. And uh, we really appreciate, deeply appreciate everybody's support here. The relationships that were forged here and the partnerships that were forged have led to this. And based on that is why we're here today. And we continue to believe that the best way we can honor these four lives that have been taken is to make sure that we have a successful outcome here. One of the partnerships that's been forged throughout this is a partnership with the University of Idaho. And on that, I'd like to introduce the president of the University of Idaho, Mr. Scott Green. Thank you, good afternoon. Scott Green, um, President of University of Idaho. Today's news of arrest is a welcome one. It's a relief to our university, our community, and our extended Vandal family. The outpouring of support over the past six weeks helped sustain us during the most trying time. It provided the strength that helped us navigate the international scrutiny visited on our students and employees. We are truly thankful for the compassion and acts of kindness shown to our community. Kindness is contagious, and it provided the light that reclaimed ground lost to evil and darkness. We first want to acknowledge and thank Governor Little for the early promise of financial support that enabled the university to secure our campus and focus on helping our students and our employees in the wake of the crimes. We also appreciate the Idaho State Police and the highly visible security presence that brought comfort and calm to a community shocked and confused by the senseless crimes. We never lost faith that this case would be solved and are grateful for the hard work of the Moscow Police Department and their law enforcement partners. Vast and committed FBI resources brought important expertise to this complex case. Across the board, dedicated, highly competent personnel worked this case to arrest. This crime has nevertheless left a mark on our university, our community, and our state. While we cannot bring back Maddie, Kaylee, Zaina, and Ethan, we can thoughtfully and purposefully carry their legacy forward in the work that we do. Our students come first, and that was proven each and every day of this investigation. We are committed to safely delivering the college town ex atmosphere, campus experience, and high-touch quality education for which the University of Idaho is known. With time, we will heal. We will move forward together. 
and we will remain vandal strong. With that, I'd like to turn it back over to Chief Fry. So now we will open the floor to questions. However, I want to remind everyone, as Prosecutor Bill Thompson explained, any factual information regarding the arrest of Kohlberger is currently sealed per Idaho law and will not be released until he has appeared in an Idaho court. Please formulate your questions accordingly. I recognize there are a lot of questions and I will try to answer as many of them as I can. Lauren Patterson, uh, Northwest Public Broadcasting, Spokane Public Radio. I realize the records are sealed. I guess I'm not too familiar with how it works, but can you tell us what tip, what lead, what piece of evidence really led you all the way from Idaho to the suspect in Pennsylvania? As I've said in the past, that's part of our investigation, and uh, we won't be releasing that this time. We, we will have those answers. We'll have them um, as soon as we can uh, make those available to you. Then a quick follow-up and a two-parter. Is our community safe, or is law enforcement still on the search for other suspects who might be involved in this attack? What I can tell you is we have an individual in custody who committed these um, horrible crimes, and... Um, I do believe our community is safe, but we still need to be vigilant, right? We still have talked about this in the past. We always need to be aware of our surroundings and make sure that uh, we're aware of what's going on. Hi, Chief. How soon into the investigation did police and law enforcement begin to spot Mr. Koberger as a potential suspect, and a follow-up, how many tips, if you can say, were specifically related to Mr. Koberger? Um, to the tip part, honestly, I can't answer that question, so I'm not even going to speculate on that. On the other part, that's part of our investigation, and it will come out. Um, I'd like the mic to please come right over here. Thank you. Dana Griffin with NBC News. Can you confirm that Kohlberger asked whether or not anyone else had been arrested when he was in custody? I cannot confirm that or I'm not sure um, of that information, but that would still be a part of our investigation. Did CODIS initially return any hits on this guy? That's still part of our investigation and um, that will come out. If we could get somebody over here, please. And then one final question. Is there any message to the online sleuths who slandered and harassed people who they believed were responsible. There was a lot of speculation going on, and we've always said from the very beginning that we're the official uh, message that comes out and to pay attention to what we're putting out there to the press. I'm Nancy Liu with News Nation, and we were over at the House this morning, and you told us that the remediation would begin today. Uh, it was suddenly stopped. Can you tell us why? Yes. Um, the House cleanup... Um, has been halted, and that came by a legal request from the court. Christina Corbin, Fox News. Uh, Chief, have you identified a motive? That is part of the investigation, and that will um, come out as we continue the investigation. But what we still ask is, is for people to continually send us things in the tip um, line. We are still looking for more information. We're still trying to build that picture, just like we have stated all along. Um, we're putting all the pieces together, and that will help. Thank you. 
Chief Veronica Miracle with CNN. Any indication that the suspect knew the victims? That's part of the investigation as well. It won't be something that will come out at this point in time, but as we continue the investigation and as this case goes to trial, that will um, be brought forth. Have you spoken to the families? Can you tell us what uh, they've they've told you today? Uh, Are you talking the victims' families? Yeah, we have reached out to the victims' family as we always do. Um, We've done that daily and we've continued to have contact with them. Hey, uh, Nate Sanford, um, you mentioned earlier that you're still seeking tips about Brian and that people should still share whatever information they have. Can you speak at all about what specifically um, people should be reaching out for, like if they know something? I would say anything and everything. Um, as we've said all along, um, we, we know what tips we're looking for. We will take those tips and we will um, have professionals look at those and decide which pieces of those we need to use for our case. So um, we ask that everybody would do that. Uh, Angela Palermo, Idaho Statesman. Um, Your department and other investigators on the case took a lot of flag for keeping information close to your chest. Are you glad that you did that, and were you worried about tipping the suspect off? I will 100% stand behind the way that we handled this investigation. And this all started from day one with our patrol officers arriving on scene, locking down the scene, um, us calling in the Idaho State Police, us calling in the FBI, and and keeping information um, that was pertinent to this um, case very, very um, tight. Um, We want to have a situation where when this goes to trial, there's no doubt um, that we've done everything right and and we've slowed down and we've continued to slow down. We'll continue to do that. Hey, Chief. Um, Have you guys found the murder weapon or the uh, Hyundai Elantra? So we are still looking for um, all pieces of evidence, um, but we are still looking for the the weapon. Um, And I will say that... uh, we have found an Elatra. Stephanie Becker with CNN. Can you tell what it was like when you got the phone call when the police told you that they had your suspect? I can tell you um, for a lot of law enforcement, it was a fairly sleepless um, couple of days with um, as we were leading up to everything that we were doing. But um, what I can tell you is um, I have faith in those agencies across the nation. Um, I have faith in our officers. I have faith in the FBI, and uh, they did a great job. Um, but sure, there was uh, some times um, even throughout um, the day that uh, we were uh, always concerned. Hi, Chief. Don, you're back at CBS News. Can you talk a little bit more about the suspect's connection to Pennsylvania? All I know is is that uh, he lives in in Pennsylvania. Chief Guy Tonnenbaum from Nonstop Local KHQ in Spokane. Uh, More about the Elantra. We saw reports that you mentioned that you were covered in Elantra, but can you specify where that was found? And uh, we know that that was one of the biggest pieces of information you were asking from the public to tip. Um, were you able to provide a, an information on whether those tips led to this uh, seizure of an Elantra? That's still part of the um, investigation that will come out um, in the future. Chief Glenn Mosley, Idaho Public Radio here in Moscow. The uh, additional police presence in town and on campus, semester's coming. Is that going to continue? 
Um, you will continue to see um, state troopers in the area. You know, we're talking to Latok County as well. You will see uh, a presence of us that we're always um, have up on campus. Uh, we have assigned officers to that. So you will continue to see a, a law enforcement presence. I'm going to take two more questions. Hi, Chief. Julie Scott, ABC News. Um, can you tell us if you eventually had a license plate number to the Elantra and how you tracked it to Pullman? That's still part of the investigation that will come out. Chief High, Matt Lovelace with the Murrow College of Communication. I want to ask about Mr. Koberger as a graduate student at WSU. Are you aware of if he returned to campus after November 13th? And have you had any communication with departments on the WSU campus about his attendance? So some of that is going to be followed up as we continue our investigation. We'll be asking some of those questions, um, but that'll come out in the near future. So what I do want to do is I want to thank you all. Um, you really have been the national voice for us. You've um, given us the opportunity to um, get many, many tips, and, and I do appreciate everything you've done, and we'll continue to look um, forward to working with you in the future on this. So I'd like to thank you for that, and thank you for your time. You have been listening to an update from investigators in the murders of four University of Idaho students. 28-year-old Brian Koberger was arrested in Pennsylvania early this morning. He's facing four counts of first-degree murder. Now, there's a lot of information in that news conference from the lead investigators and the president of the University of Idaho, a community that has been very shaken over the course of the last six and a half weeks. But I want to start with CNN's Gene Cazares, who is outside the Monroe County Correctional Facility in Pennsylvania, where the suspect is being held. And, and Gene, we just learned a lot from the police about the suspect, but there are still significant questions in understanding how these four students were killed. What did you make of what we just heard? Well, I thought it was interesting to know that the criminal complaint in Idaho was filed yesterday, four counts of first-degree murder, but also a felony count of burglary that he entered that apartment with the intent to commit a felony in there, obviously the murders. So it doesn't appear as though there was an invitation to come into the house. Also, I think it is extremely interesting that we learned that they have found the Electra. They have not found the murder weapon at all. And as far as more information, it is sealed in the probable cause affidavit with the Idaho courts until the suspect goes from northeast Pennsylvania, where we are now, back to Idaho. And I want to tell you, he was arrested at 1.30 in the morning. It's about eight miles from where I am. This is rural northeastern Pennsylvania. There's farmland here. It's just small town America. And what a source has been telling CNN to go along with this is that the FBI out of Philadelphia was actually surveilling him in Pennsylvania here for the last four days. And while that was happening, that authorities in Idaho were putting together an arrest warrant to be signed off by a judge alleging the probable cause that they had to, for him to be arrested. And the source tells CNN that that was DNA found at the scene, but also that that white car actually belonged to him. Now, once that probable cause and the arrest warrant was gotten, the complaint's been filed, they moved in at 1.30 this morning. It was the Pennsylvania State Police that actually arrested him in Albrightsville 
about eight miles away from here. He had a court appearance early this morning, and I saw on the docket it said motion to set bail was denied. We heard he is here without bail, and the next proceeding will be right here in northeastern Pennsylvania on Tuesday, which will be the extradition process because he's got to be sent back to Idaho, but that has to be done legally. Either he agrees to do it or he doesn't. And then, as you heard, the prosecutors say they would ask the governor to have him removed from the Commonwealth here. Yeah, and the Latah County prosecutor acknowledging that that could take time if he does not agree to extradition. And, Gene, you make a really good point here, an important point, as everybody tries to figure out as many details as possible. Uh, what the police chief was saying, the Moscow police chief was saying, definitely tracks with the reporting, very much aligns with the reporting CNN has, but the actual officials themselves very limited in what they can say because of Idaho state law. Everything remains under seal until that extradition is actually done. I, I want to bring in Veronica Miracle. Veronica, you were in the room. You've been in, you're in Moscow, Idaho. You've been following this case since the very beginning. Based on what you heard today, do you feel like some of the biggest questions you've had over the course of the last six plus weeks have been answered? Well, certainly, I think the biggest question, not just for myself, but so many here, is what was the motive? How could this have happened? Why did someone do this? And that question was not answered today. As you were saying, they are incredibly limited in what they can reveal because the suspect is not in Idaho, and that information can only be unsealed until he returns. The prosecutor was also saying that he could waive his extradition and uh, certainly come back to Idaho. Um, but if he doesn't do that, it could be a long process. So if that happens, it could be a long time until we find out exactly why this happened. I also asked the police chief uh, if there was any indication that the suspect knew the students. Was this random? Uh, how did this play out? He could not answer that. He said this is all part of the investigation. And the prosecutor and the police chief both emphasized that they are continuing to reach out to the community for tips. Now that the suspect information has been released, they want to know if people in this community have interacted with Koberger. They want to know if there's anything strange that has happened in the past and they're seeking more information as this investigation continues. Yeah, it's it a very interesting request. Don't stop sending tips, according to the state and local officials. They want more information on the individual uh, that is now... Uh, been arrested on this. I want to swing over to Josh Campbell. Josh, you're a former FBI agent. It was kind of fascinating for as little detail as they were allowed to convey. You got a few kind of threads of things. The, the police chief talking about how it had been several nights, several sleepless nights in the lead up to this. Clearly, this had been in the works for several days. Um, and, and that they have uh, they have an Elantra. Obviously, the Hyundai Elantra was considered one of the big breakthroughs uh, of this case in terms of actual information, tangible in information that they were going on. The, the Idaho police chief said he developed a clear picture of this investigation over time. What does that tell you about how the search for the alleged killer progressed? You know, I think if it gets to that vehicle, you know, we've been re reporting based on our sources that much of the identification uh, was due in part or due largely to that actual white Hyundai Elantra as authorities were able to track. And, you know, as we've been reporting, uh, the suspect ended up traveling some 2,500 miles from Idaho to Pennsylvania. And it really shows you, you know, as you mentioned, the sleepless nights for law enforcement. Think about the number of moving parts that were involved in this investigation. You have authorities in one jurisdiction in the state of Idaho that learn uh, with help 
help from the FBI and the Pennsylvania State Police that the suspect is in another location. And they quickly have to move to go to the courts to get the legal process in order to set up and arrest that person. Now, we know the suspect was under surveillance for uh, for several days based on our sourcing. Um, and then authorities ultimately decided this morning to actually move in. I'm told from a law enforcement source that it was a Pennsylvania State Police who actually physically put handcuffs on the suspect that after they went to the court to get their own warrant, you know, the suspect obviously being held as he goes through that extradition process that Gene was just mentioning. But a lot of moving parts here. One thing we still don't know is the actual motive. And, you know, authorities say, as you just mentioned, they're trying to elicit tips from the public. Obviously, in this business, there's always a hesitation to name suspects, to give them publicity. This is an occasion where authorities are asking us to do just that, to get this person's face out there, to get his name out there. They want as much information as they can as they try to work backwards and piece together why he allegedly conducted these four brutal murders, Phil. Yeah, it's stunning how many moving parts to actually get to this point. But it was also somewhat stunning over the course of six and a half weeks. And I want to bring in the rest of our panel here. Julia Kaim, you're a CNN national security yeah. analyst. Um, looking back, you know, the, the police chief, James Fry, Moscow police chief, acknowledged that the, he recognized that there was frustration uh, in the community, but yeah. outside the community as well, as people were trying to figure out why there was so little information being conveyed, so little known about anything here. Do you think the criticism investigators faced about staying so quiet throughout the investigation was unfair now that we've gotten to this point? I think pieces of it are unfair. I I still believe that uh, that the public officials probably should have been more transparent in the early days when they knew that they had a mass murder. They essentially didn't. And and that's just an important lesson. We're not going to blame them. They've done a tremendous thing. But just that transparency to the community, because we certainly heard uh, that that people didn't even, a lot of people didn't even know that there had been a murder like this. They didn't know what it was. You want to protect the community. Uh, but at, once they have an investigation, uh, shutting down, I'm always, this is maybe against interest because I'm an analyst for CNN, but I, I tend to forgive uh, law enforcement for shutting down. This is a small community. They do not know if the murderer is was or is a member of the community. They don't know his status in the community. They don't know whether he had ties to law enforcement. They didn't know a lot of things. As the investigation then uh, uh, branches out to the FBI, state police, uh, uh, multiple states, uh, all the media that they thanked, uh, uh, then um, uh, uh, then they they begin to. Uh, collect, as as Josh was saying, tips from the public uh, and engage the public in a way that clearly proves fruitful. And just finally ending on this point, this we're all searching for a why uh, because it's inexplicable that there won't be a why, right? I mean, I think we just have to be honest with ourselves as parents, as citizens. You just, you want to you don't want it's 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 as one of the speakers said it's the, it's a it's a good and a bad day right in the sense they have someone uh, and we don't know if there's a why uh, was there a connection an online connection or or was this just a a brutal murder murder done at random and so they're continuing to try to figure this out because uh, it's important to the family members but it's also important of course to not just this community but all communities uh, in terms of their safety and security yeah and Julia you hit on a couple of key pieces of context here that. Mm-hmm. I think are important fleshing out. And the fact that this is a community of about 25,000. The University of Idaho has about 11,000. Yeah. There hadn't been a murder there.
there and I think five or six years up to this point. And the biggest concern, as you noted, was the public safety concern, given there had been conflicting assessments of whether this was a targeted killing, whether it wasn't. It was walked back and forth to some degree. And so that's kind of separate and apart from the investigation part, uh, where clearly they feel like uh, they have landed on an outcome, obviously, with much still to come. Phil, you were, Phil Mudd, you were reacting during the news conference, during several of the officers' questions. Do you think investigators should have told us more today with you know, the caveat that they're obviously uh, recognizing Idaho state law. Absolutely not. Look, from day one, the first problem the investigators had was they spoke too much. You just mentioned them talking about a targeted killing. That was a mistake that they drew back on. As soon as they speak, they're going to be under some compulsion to speak again. As soon as they speak, the individual who committed this will be watching this to determine whether there's a, a circle tightening around him. And let's get to another point. Every single thing they say will be picked apart by defense attorneys to determine whether there was prejudice in the case. The most famous case of my lifetime was O.J. Simpson. It turned on whether uh, on the jury saying that the police were prejudiced against the defendant. They don't want to say anything that gives an advantage to the defense attorneys. I understand the community's frustrated in the family. I wouldn't have said a word from day one. And I think the police did it right. Casey Jordan, over to you. You know, you're, you're a criminologist. Again, a few threads of interesting information coming out of this, and one of them was that police still have not been able to find a murder weapon. Does that strike, strike you as strange, or how, how do these? How does this process usually play out? Oh, not at all. And so I'm not at all surprised, although really disheartened, to find out that this suspect is a PhD student in criminology at Washington State University. From the outset, we had to understand that this was an organized killer, the fact that we had no leads for so long. Uh, And he got away in the middle of the night without that video camera footage uh, from somebody's residence that picked up the white Elantra. I don't know that we would have this guy. We'll find out more later whether or not they've linked him with DNA. But uh, the, the key is that he would be smart enough to get rid of the weapon for sure. Apparently wasn't smart enough to get rid of the car. Uh, prob- you know, the fact that he fled back to his hometown in Pennsylvania, not surprising. He, he thinks out of sight, out of mind. What interests me the most is a question that came up in the presser uh, based on some reporting by somebody who was in the room. They said during his booking and this, you know, the police would not confirm it, that he looked at them and said, um, has anyone else been arrested in this case? Now that rang bells for me because this is a smart guy who's obsessed with crime. And to me, that indicates a few things. It's a setup. He is trying to already, and he's sophisticated. He knows how the criminal justice system works because he studies it. He wants to set up the idea that either he didn't work alone or they've got the wrong guy or, scariest of all, that perhaps he's suffering from a dissociative identity disorder and an alter committed these crimes. So it will be really interesting when he starts speaking to get a better insight into his psychology. Yeah, and Mary... Uh, Mary Ellen O'Toole, I kind of want to swing this over to you. Uh, along those lines, look, the police chief said, I believe we have an individual in custody who committed these horrible cr- crimes. I do believe the community is safe uh, at this time. Um, you kind of read into that. Uh, but all of the elements that we do have, and again, the, they are disparate threads. Everybody's trying to put everything together right now. But about who Brian Koberger actually was, what his background was that we know up to this point. Um, we still don't know the motive behind the killing. Is it likely that this was a random murder or must he have had some sort of connection to the students? Well, when you use the word random, are you suggesting that this was somebody that just had no knowledge of, uh, no information about 
either the victims or the um, the house, and then just happen to wander inside the house. Um, if that's what you were asking me, I don't think that would be, that's not a viable um, conclusion that I think most of us would make. I think based on the knowledge that the offender had inside the house, uh, the time of day, the um, the the way that the, the murders were carried out, the unprovoked murders were carried out, that and if they were targeted, we still are relying on on early on information. This is someone that had some kind of knowledge about the victims and the inside of the house. I think that's far more reasonable than just just a stranger walking down the street saying, "I feel like killing somebody tonight." There's a good looking house. I'll just go inside. I I, I don't see that as being reasonable. Yeah. No. I, there's a lot of unanswered <laughs> questions. I I I can't can't argue with that assessment. And, and to be clear, Brian Koberger was a student at Washington State. It's about eight miles away from Moscow, Idaho, was yeah. arrested 2,500 miles away. I think there's just so much we're going to find out. And obviously, as the officials made clear, yeah. uh, at this point in time, they can't say anything at all uh, about the factual information until he arrives in Idaho. Guys, uh, I really appreciate your expertise. There's so much more to learn here. I'm sure we'll be talking about it often in the weeks ahead. Thanks so much. In a busy day, more transcripts from the January 6th committee have been released, including the interview with the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Stick around. In our politics lead, new witness transcripts from the House committee investigating the deadly January 6th attack, including key interviews with Jenny Thomas, wife of uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, as well as Trump's son-in-law and former White House advisor, Jerry Kushner. CNN's Sarah Murray has a Ph.D. in the reading of transcripts based on the last several weeks. Uh, I want to start with Jenny Thomas, because obviously she has been a figure in this throughout. Um, her husband is a Supreme Court justice. And she came under scrutiny uh, for pushing former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to overturn the results of the 2020 election. What did she tell the panel about those messages to Mark Meadows? Well, look, our team has been going through her transcript, as with so many. You know, we previously reported that she had texted Mark Meadows, you know, encouraging Donald Trump to stand firm, saying the left was attempting the greatest heist in our history, essentially telling Mark Meadows, look, you guys should keep up these election challenges. So she's asked in her interview with the committee, you know, about these texts with Mark Meadows, and she does give a little bit of, of a mea culpa. She says, I regret the tone and content of these texts. I really find my language imprudent and my choices of sending the context of these emails un." unfortunate. You know, she said it was an emotional time and that she was emoting. Although, interestingly, she still told the committee she thinks there was fraud in the 2020 election, even though she hasn't seen any specific evidence of that. I regret the content of the emails, but still believe the content. Got it. Okay, makes sense. Uh, Also, according to emails provided to the committee, Jared Kushner wanted to trade, uh, Donald Trump wanted to trademark the phrase rigged election, exclamation point, days after the election day in 2020. Walk us through that. Yeah. So, you know, Donald Trump throughout the course of his career, throughout his candidacies, has wanted to trademark all kinds of slogans. Of course, as we know, this is days after the election has been called. He decides he wants to trademark the phrase rigged election. This comes up in emails Jared Kushner has provided to the committee. It comes up in Jared Kushner's interview. He gets an email from Dan Scavino saying, hey, Donald Trump wants to trademark rigged election. Essentially, what am I supposed to do about this? I don't know how to get this trademark. Jared Kushner passes that information along to a couple other people to try to get the ball rolling on the former president's request. Normal times. Don't forget the exclamation point, by the way. Very important here. Uh, One actually very interesting part is the interview with former Deputy White House Chief of Staff Tony Ornato. Obviously, he was a central figure in some of Cassidy Hutchinson's most explosive allegations. Uh, What did he say about the events of January 6th? 
So, you know, he was asked about a whole host of things by the committee, in part because Cassidy Hutchinson had provided this explosive testimony. You know, we previously reported that he did not corroborate the incidents that she had talked about that happened, you know, allegedly Trump getting very irate, lunging at people in the motorcade. He didn't corroborate any of that. But he was asked about what was happening on January 6th, about efforts people were trying to get to, to make, you know, encourage Donald Trump to make a public statement. And Tony Arnato basically was like, it was so crazy, I can't really remember very much. He says, I'll be honest with you, it was a very chaotic time in trying to get the information. It was usually late information or it wasn't accurate or it was the fog of war and it was misrepresented. And it was a very, a very chaotic day. So I don't recall those specific details. We should also note that while Ornato's attorney has said that he was cooperative with the committee, the committee wrote in their report multiple times that they did not believe his testimony was credible. Got it. Yeah. I was in the Capitol building. I can agree. It was a very chaotic day on January 6th. Can I ask you, before we close, obviously, Republicans take over the majority next week on January 3rd. Do you have a sense of how this plays out over the course of the next couple of days? And I don't mean to preface ruining your weekend. Yeah, sure. That's not a triggering question at all. Well, there are still a lot of transcripts that need need to come out. We may get some today. We may get them over the weekend. You know, basically, the committee has until Tuesday to get this stuff out. After that, there's going to be a repository publicly on the GPO website. We're waiting to get the details of that. So this stuff will live on, even though the committee will not. Happy New Year, Murray. (laughs) Jerry Murray, as always, thanks so much. Great reporting. All right, coming up, a nearly normal schedule for Southwest today. But almost 10 days later, the meltdown has cost passengers so much more than money. In our money lead, finally, Southwest Airlines jets are back in the skies. Its executives say they can't apologize enough for the more than week-long meltdown that stranded thousands of travelers. CNN's Gabe Cohen takes a look at the cost to passengers. Yeah, I'm not sure how to feel about it. The Milkerick family says they're out more than $5,000 and a lot of time from a Caribbean vacation that never happened. Their Southwest flight from Baltimore canceled Christmas Day. The only flight to get us to Grand Cayman was then leaving from Fort Lauderdale on Tuesday. So they rented a car and drove 15 hours from Maryland to Florida to meet their luggage and catch that flight. But Tuesday, they say, it was canceled too. It was falling apart a little. We've saved for this vacation, and it was our Christmas gift to our our son and to each other. And, um, you know, it was really kind of, not to be overly dramatic, but we felt devastated. They're back in Baltimore. Their flights refunded, though not the hotels, clothing, car rental, or gas. They're not sure where to request that. And their bags, checked on Christmas, are still missing. What would you say to Southwest? Get your stuff together. Southwest has vowed to take care of these customers, and the U.S. Department of Transportation says it'll hold the airline accountable if it doesn't. You are owed compensation if you have been in this situation since Christmas Eve. But some travelers have lived a nightmare that receipts won't resolve. This has been the worst Christmas I've ever ever gone through. Karen Jenkins is back at the airport searching for luggage nearly a week into visiting her daughter. Inside her bags, pain medication for some stomach issues and custom medical supplies for her colostomy bag. Normally I have to change a patch every other day. Now because the patch is thin, not only am I'm messing up my clothes, but the odor is seeping through. I haven't been able to relax. I haven't been able to enjoy um, the holiday. Because I'm worrying about 
can somebody smell me? Karen and her daughter left without those bags to search for a medical supply store. Mostly I'm just disappointed. Trisha O'Kelly had to watch her father's military funeral on Zoom after her Southwest trip to Florida got canceled. Have you gotten a refund? No. Nothing. Nothing from them. She scrambled and booked last minute on another airline, but that got canceled. And by that time, she was out of options. I'm super frustrated, but I think mostly I'm just disappointed um, and sad that I couldn't be there for my mom and sad that I wasn't there in person to say goodbye to my dad. Now, Southwest CEO says they will cover costs like hotels, rental cars, even booking travelers with other airlines. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has said if the airline doesn't do what's required to take care of its customers, they're ready to fine Southwest tens of thousands of dollars per violation. Phil. Get going. Thanks so much. I'm Phil Mattingly, in for Jake Tapper. I hope everyone has a happy, safe, wonderful new year. Our coverage continues with the one and only Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room after a short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.